Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nolan. I'd like to welcome you to this program. Today, we are continuing with our series on Conversations with Remarkable Minds. We are going to talk about a philosophical exploration into food and farming as a condition for living as free human beings. My guest today is Wendell Berry. Now, how often do we hear the expression, a person of letters? That means a person of great intellect, reason, and literacy cap capable of articulating their thoughts in a wide variety of modalities, such as fiction, essays, poems, history, commentaries. Well, Wendell Berry is one of America's most recognized men of letters, as well as one of the earlier pioneers and farmers of organic sustainable agriculture in the modern era. What Wendell has written about for almost 40 years, ignored as a Luddite at the time, is now the norm among the environmental opponents of big agricultural and food industries. He's regarded by many as the grandfather of the slow food movement, and his philosophical thought and inspired stories on land, agriculture, and food have been a major muse for people like uh, Bill McGibbon and Michael Pollan and uh, Barbara Kingsover. Wendell's written over 50 books in tomes, including novels, novelas, and stories, nonfiction works, poems, and essays. And after teaching English at New York University, he purchased a farm and uh, Lane's Landing in rural Kentucky. And while periodically teaching at the University of Kentucky, he also served as a as a base commune with the land and the art of farming with the purity of food in mind and to be, in, to be inspired philosophically over our nation's hum, humanity relationships to the soil, the food, and the wildlife and nature and the importance of nurturing community. He's won a lot of awards, T.S. Eliot and Gene Stein Awards, the Michael Merton Award, the Kentuckian of the Year, the Guggenheim Fellowships, and others. He is the author of Bringing It to the Table on Farming and Food. Nice to have you with us today, Wendell Berry. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think, I think you've oversold me a little bit, but I appreciate it. Well, I'd like for us to go through your philosophy of living, and let's begin with just a brief overview. I'll give the overview, then you take your time without any interruptions from me, and put together your insights, your experiences, okay? Well, I'll do my best. All right. I'm of the belief that today we cannot sustain our current lifestyles with over-congestion in major metropolitan areas, especially those at sea level in New York, Washington, uh, and down the East Coast, and in L.A. and other uh, places on the West Coast because of rising sea levels over the next, not 100 years, but now we're told over the next 5 to 10 years, getting into the aquifers and getting into the subsections of buildings and tunnels and subways. We also, I, I believe, have made ourselves over-reliant on genetically modified foods, especially soy, corn, wheat, and others and at the exclusion of nurturing biodynamic uh, and bio-available uh, bio and sustainable organic produce locally. 
I also believe that we have put an enormous amount of our good quality farmland into biofuels and that both the economics of scale are wrong to do that. We do not have any economic savings. But it also takes then land out of production for healthy foods. Now, when you have all that on one side and much of that being led by the major big corporate uh, farm interest like Cargill and Archer Midland Daniels, and on the other side, you have 40 million Americans as of today, the day we're talking on the air, are now considered so poor that they are also hungry. That means they're not getting enough food each day to supply their body's needs. Twelve million of them are children. This is in the United States. That's more than all the people living in the state of California. On top of all that, the fact that we are poorer than we've been since 1936, we have more land being taken out of production of of locally grown uh, foods that we could use into biofuels, we now have a perfect storm of the environment where dust storms, the desertification of the West is increasing at a very rapid rate. Uh, Today, for example, in Australia, uh, and yesterday, they had so much sand in the air in one of their major cities that people couldn't even see to drive. And this is one person who'd lived there for 74 years said had never happened before in his lifetime. Australia is really hard hit, but also California is hard hit. They're in a permanent drought. Texas has the worst drought in the state's recorded history. Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, all in the midst of massive droughts and where more and more land is no longer able to be uh, used for sustainability because the water is not there, yet massive amounts of people are living in these areas. And as a result, there's not enough water for the people living in the cities like Los Angeles and the food being produced, including the San Joaquin Valley, and uh, for industry. We simply not, we do not have enough natural resources, including water, for what we have been doing up to this point. Now, when you look at all this that I've just laid out, and that's why I said it's a big canvas to paint from, I would like for you to go through this as you can and show us how we can resolve many of these problems in ways that will reharmonize our actions and activity with natural cycles and how we should be looking at how we can live in cooperation with nature instead of this constant manifest destiny of conquering nature at all costs. The forum is yours. Take your time. Well, in spite of your confidence in me, I'm not sure that I can remember all of that, and uh, I certainly can't represent myself as somebody who knows how to solve all the problems. But um, I think as a a beginning, it would be um, a good idea to say that um, we need to structure our economic life as a proper pyramid, that is, with nature at the bottom, and the uh, land economies of human beings, that is uh, uh, farming, ranching, forestry, mining, those things as the next layer. And the next layer, manufacturing or processing, and at the top, the 
uh, economy of consumption. What we've uh, done in the last several decades is, is make a perfect inversion of that pyramid. We have a huge population of consumers who are mostly uh, helpless to do anything essential for themselves and um, who are uh, ignorant of the um, cultural and natural sources of their lives and who are uh, uh, totally dependent, passively dependent, on a tiny number of land users at the bottom. So what we have is a, is a very tippy pyramid. And uh, if even if we had no problem with global warming, which I take for granted that we do, we would still uh, be in trouble with uh, because we've balanced this enormous uh, population on uh, the work of too, too few people. And the work of those people, because they are so few, uh, has to do chiefly with making the land produce and very little, really, in maintaining the productive capacity of the land. So that is a great problem, and uh, I don't have the uh, solution to it. I don't think there is a simple solution to it, and I would be suspicious of any um, simple solution or any simpleton who offered one. Well, give us where uh, you believe we could begin. All right. I think we've already begun um, with the um, what is now uh, pretty well established and within limits successful movement um, toward local food economies. And this movement involves... Um, um, gardeners and farmers, um, community-supported agriculture farms, uh, so-called organic farms and gardens, um, who are producing for local consumption. And it involves, just as importantly, uh, the um, urban consumers who are willing to support uh, this kind of food production. Uh, this has been going on now for quite a while, uh, several decades in some places, in fact, and um, it's been it has been done um, by what I think could be properly called leadership from the bottom. That is, um, citizens. Farmers, gardeners, consumers, uh, who see that something ought to be done and who have simply started doing it. They've done it without official permission or instruction or guidance or support or even official awareness. I don't think the leadership at the top knows that this uh, work is, is going on and 
respectively and, and successfully at the bottom. So I think that is happening. Recognition from the leaders at the top would certainly help. Um, but I, the, um, the movement that I'm talking about is gaining ground uh, significantly so far without recognition from the top. I appreciate your insights. I'd like to go in a few more directions. By let the way, me, let me add something. Yes, yeah, sure, please. Uh, the most recent development in this uh, uh, situation in regard to agriculture is a 50 year farm bill that uh, West Jackson and the Land Institute, with the support of an extensive coalition of conservation and agricultural organizations, um, They've, they have um, uh, proposed to the Secretary of Agriculture a 50-year farm bill that would um, uh, address directly the problems of, of toxicity and soil erosion and the ruin of rural communities. And the uh, principal, um, um, the key proposal uh, proposal in this farm bill is what I suppose you could call the reperennialization of agriculture. That is, from the present uh, 20% of agricultural land that is in perennial crops or perennial plants uh, would increase over the next 50 years to 80%. It would be starting with the return of, of animals from the uh, fact, animal factories to uh, farms, pastures, and uh, uh, the growing of forage crops, hay crops, uh, perennial forage crops and hay crops. Uh, then on to the introduction of um, grain-bearing perennials in, in uh, 2019 and on in stages until the 80% would be achieved. That has been uh, is receiving some notice from some people in the government. All right, I'm I'm going to uh, take this in a little different direction, if you don't mind. I'd like to start with I with, with what I believe is doable now. I recently, for example, I, I held a uh, a simple little workshop down where my home is in Naples, Florida. I have a certified organic farm there. It's only one of a few in the state because it takes about three, three and a half years to get certified. And you, have right. to get, you have to jump through a, a lot of hoops to get there. Yes. And um, I didn't know how many people would come because it wasn't uh, advertised publicly. It was just word of mouth. But a good number of people came. Virtually all of them were young people, young people meaning in their 20s and 30s. There were no older people at all. And I was wondering, was that because uh, they weren't aware of it, or they simply didn't feel that it was important to them. So there was a natural food restaurant there and a place where you can buy a good quality organic produce at a reasonable price. And I would ask the people, the majority of whom eat there are older people. So over a period of a couple of weeks, I would ask people, uh, what is your interest in organic? And they had an interest in organic, but they weren't interested in growing organic. They weren't interested in supporting an organic movement, but they were consumers. And uh, they were into their comfort of lifestyle. You know, I heard this excuse so many times. You know, I put in my time. 
you know, I've done my work. I'm here because I love the weather, the environment, uh, the the culture, the la- 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 loss of uh, uh, the lack of crime. But but you're younger. You go do that. And I was, you know, I'm not there to argue with the people. If that's their position, I I have to respect their position, their position on their position. I, even though I don't believe that that's going to help us. So what I'm seeing. This is my own personal observation, and I do not state that this is any more than that, that the majority of people that I have met in the back to the earth, uh, back to uh, uh, either individually or collectively, to the collectives or to the co-ops or some form of what I would call um, stewardships of the earth in uh, homesteads, are principally younger people. Um, as it was in the 60s and 70s, and that an awful lot of middle Americans are so tied up in their normal lifestyles and their normal responsibilities that this is a second thought. So that brings me to my specific issue. You have stated that eating is an agricultural act. You also have stated in your writings about uh, that we should become awake to the food we eat and eating as an act of freedom. There is a relationship there. And I would ask you to add into that mix the idea that we are conscious about wanting to eat, and we're very specific about what we eat, and rarely do people make radical changes in their diet, generally only after emergencies or after they've been told by their doctor, you must get rid of this or you're going to have another heart attack, etc. But rarely do people ask, this uh, this pork chop I'm eating, this bacon that I'm eating, uh, this McMuffin I'm eating, where did this come from? How was this? How did it go from the beginning to my plate right now? So we seem to have in our society, amongst the majority of Americans, a complete end of uh, thought when it comes to I I want the food, I've eaten the food, I like the way it tastes and smells, it's my comfort food. I don't want to know any more about it. And then my question is, are we able as a nation to see the truth? And one last little snippet here. Last night, I was up in my production editing a film I'm working on now on vegetarianism. Now, I don't say anybody else has to be a vegetarian. I choose to be, but I also respect people have a right not to because I respect freedom of choice. But when I was watching what I had filmed, and we have lots of films from Israel, I I wanted to get a film of at least five or six leading rabbis, leading leading experts in the literature showing the importance of uh, respecting the uh, rights of animals, the health of animals, and then I showed what goes on at slaughterhouses, and it was so brutal that I was sitting there in my seat looking at this. I felt such pain for the how these animals are treated by the, are you ready for this, 10 billion per year. And yet none of this is in front of anyone's consciousness. They're not seeing it. They don't hear about it. And then the question is, what if we put this information, because I intend to, that's why I'm doing this major film on what it is to be a vegetarian from every possible point of view. Would would Americans just reject if this any scenes of the actual treatment of animals, how they're treated before they get to them as a meal, 
would they reject this? Would they be rageful and angry? Would they be disgusted? Or would they feel some compassion and begin to say, my goodness, I better extend my conscience about the choice I'm making. That's a lot to, 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 uh, to focus on, but whatever you feel comfortable talking about, would you please? All right, let's put our finger on this vegetarian business. I'd like to get back to that in a minute. But um, I think your perception is right that this uh, uh, effort of better farming and better food is being led by young people. That's not uh, really too surprising. I'm old enough now to understand um, how important it is to have a routine and not be disturbed from it. Um, but the, uh, this, the change that we're talking about is going to require energy, and it's going to require a certain amount of passion, and you look to the young people for that. But also the young people are parents. Um, most people who have uh, young children are comparatively young themselves. And I think a lot of the uh, movement toward better food is um, uh, happening because of the concern that young parents have for what they're feeding their young young children. Um, they're, the movement toward better food, toward local food, is, uh, as I said before, coming from the bottom up. But we have coming from the top down, if not leadership, at least changing circumstances. Uh, there was an article in Time magazine, for instance, uh, on August 31st of this year, that uh, said flat out that we're going to have to change from industrial agriculture. And the reason is that we're using up the resources that are feeding us. Um, so that's coming down from the top, and I think it will speed change. Now, uh, the issue of vegetarianism is a, a, a fairly complex one, and, and uh, I don't think that you can argue against uh, taste or preference in food. If somebody doesn't want to eat an animal, that's fine. Um, I kind of begin to be troubled by vegetarianism when it becomes uh, political. Um, the first thing you have to, to uh, concede is the inhumanity of our present uh, uh, meat economy. It's awful uh, for the animals uh, to be sh uh, raised in these um, prisons, and it's awful for the people who have to work in them, and it's awful for the neighbors who live around them. They're really no good in any uh, respect except a, um, a false uh, idea of economic efficiency. In a, uh, an energy economy that's growing more expensive, uh, it begins to look sort of foolish to be bringing food to these animals in, in confined uh, situations when the animals have legs and could go get it for themselves if they were in, say, a pasture. So uh, that's, that's one part of the argument. The present uh, uh, meat economy is uh, uh, based on 
an inhumane, uh, energy-expensive, unsustainable um, system. Uh, nobody who cares about animals could be for it. On the other hand, uh, we don't have any examples that I know of of a food economy or a way of farming that remains healthy without animals. Uh, you've got to have animal manure. Uh, and in most places, you need to maintain the health of the land. You need a rotation through uh, pasture and or forage crops. In other words, you can't uh, preserve the land while plowing it and spraying it every year. So a, a country, uh, a region such as the one I live in, which is uh, uh, rolling, highly erodible topography, only probably 5 to 10% of that can be uh, safely plowed each year, and it would have to be carefully done at that. We need grass which means that we need grazing animals. So to put together, put together the picture of a sustainable uh, agriculture, we've got to uh, arrive at what the English agriculturist Sir Albert Howard would have called a proper balance of plants and animals. I appreciate your insights. They're both sensitive to the issue, and they're certainly expanding in our consciousness. I, uh, I would add to that what I've just said, that a local food economy reduces the, the distance uh, that animals have to be transported for, for uh, slaughter. And uh, in, in other words, it reduces the uh, energy budget. See, I, I think it's very healthy to have some animals on property for grazing. I have some uh, zebu cows. They're tiny little cows. They can walk under your legs, miniature horses. And they can keep the grass grow, grown down. I've had a 200-acre organic farm and was able to cultivate the soil, cultivate the crops without sprays, without a loss, interplanting, and at least 10 different types of uh, bed planting without ever slaughtering an animal. In fact, I've never had to slaughter an animal. Uh, so for those of us who have seen how we can raise crops without sacrificing an animal, I think it's very healthy. In fact, I had chickens, especially in my ranch in Ch Texas, because there are fire ants down there. I don't know if you have fire ants in Kentucky, but, no. fire, but boy, fire ant, they're, they're nasty little critters, and they're everywhere. And, um, and we got chickens because the chickens would eat these fire ants all day long. They would drop their manure in that hot sun, biodegrades down very quickly, and nourishes the soil. So you're absolutely correct. The manure from the animal and them being a natural insect eater, uh, but they didn't eat the vegetables, which was great. So I just let 500 chickens roam. And uh, then they gave off eggs. Now, I don't eat eggs, but I gave the eggs to neighbors, and they had, uh, they had organic fertilized eggs, which they were very appreciative of, of dozens and dozens every day. So I believe that there is also a balance. Uh, the difference might be between us 
that I don't believe we have to ever sacrifice an animal in order to maintain the balance, though I, I absolutely appreciate your thoughts that well, having animals have, not balanced. We'd have to, to, to do some very careful accounting. Uh, where is your fertility coming from? What do you do with those spent layers? Um, how do you maintain the population of, of uh, chickens and so on? And I want to ask you, your chickens didn't eat your ripe tomatoes? No, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. And I'm a big believer in composting. I have, I have a compost pile that's probably oh, 10, 15 tons. And I've always biodegrading down things. And uh, there's a local, um, I go to a local uh, organic dairy place and I get uh, some manure. But outside of that, I don't use the manures. I use microorganisms. And there's a whole new science of microorganisms that will biodegrade down and give you a very healthy, natural, probiotic effect upon the, uh, uh, the uh, material that's breaking down. I also use sea vegetables, uh, seaweed out of the ocean. There's a lot of different creative ways well, you can do it. I understand all that. What would you do if you had um, uh, rolling topography? Well, I've had rolling topography. My first organic farm was the Stone Ridge uh, the Fertiler Farm in Stone Ridge, and when it said Stone Ridge, it was literal. And what I did was uh, I put down the type of vining plants that cover the topography that give you beans. And I had at least 20 different types of beans that would be growing off rocks, off cliffs, off ledges. I mean, my, my, I grew up in West Virginia and are right near Kentucky, and the topography in Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Northwestern Virginia, pretty much the same. And, uh, and I never had a problem. I also grew herbs, especially wild herbs, ginseng. You're, you're in one of the best places in America. You and West Virginia are the two best places outside of Wisconsin to grow wild ginseng. You've got ginseng that's 70 to 100 years old growing down there in Kentucky, as we do in West Virginia. Um, uh, ginseng, edible herbs, culinary herbs, because herbs don't need the same root structure. They don't have the same root structure. They are a clinging root structure. They have microphylla on the, on the ends that are different than, than uh, let's say, a vegetable that's a bulb vegetable or a root vegetable. And then you put down, uh, you can put down all forms of uh, uh, bahia, uh, grass, you can put down alfalfa, clover, and so I don't have a problem uh, farming in any environment. You show me the environment, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you a way to farm, because I've had the dry Texas farms. Well, the you're the experts upstairs. you need, then, not me. Well, I just believe that there's so many things we can do by sharing insights and information, because I'm sure that the things you've done in your great life, you could share with us, because we wouldn't have had your experience. We only have our own experience. Well, all I can tell you is that I have hillsides that are too steep to plow, and I have them. Some of them are in woodland, and some of them are in grass. And uh, I have a small flock of sheep to harvest the grass and make human food of it. And we um, sell our lambs to private customers. What about and the wool? Do you sell your wool? The wool doesn't pay for shearing it. I see. Wool's been supplanted by uh, uh, synthetic fibers. All right. And um, have you ever grown mushrooms? No. Mushrooms. Well, are... I grow mushrooms in my woods. They 
they grow without my help, but I'm not, I don't know much about mushrooms. Because mushrooms are one of the best foods in the world, anti-cancer. Uh, there's an enormous market for uh, wild mushrooms, culinary restaurants. Yes, I'm aware of that. And that's one of the things I did when I had cliffs, and I couldn't grow anything on a cliff, and so I tried growing mushrooms, and gee whiz, they grew. Anyhow, back to another issue. Well, uh, Gary Anderson at Constantine, Kentucky, uh, is uh, the best authority on uh, on mushrooms as a forest product. Could you share with us, and, and I, I want just one last area, if you would, please. Could you share with us what message we can give to the American public about just being aware that they cannot indefinitely sustain this artificial, completely uh, nature-removed lifestyle that they have to, at some point, take some responsibility where there will be consequences? Well, I think the first step toward... uh, This has to be a lot of people making personal changes in their lives. And the first first step is that they should attempt uh, some kind of accounting. They uh, They should... ask themselves what they know about the food that they eat. Where does it come from? Uh, how far away is it? What does it cost to produce it? Um, who suffers uh, in the process of its production? Um, what does it cost, in, um, both ecologically and, and economically, to produce it? Uh, and people who try that will find that if they want to do that kind of accounting, they've got to get their food closer to where they eat it. And um, so, so they have to draw in, so to speak, the, uh, the uh, boundary of their food economy. And so if you think that way, then you begin to see that it's ridiculous for a huge um, population like the one in the northeast to be sitting in the middle of productive land on which uh, uh, farmers are failing. Very well said, and I really appreciate your insights and the full body of your work over the decades. You have uh, inspired us to a slow food movement, and your thoughts on the earth are very healing and revealing. Thank you very much, Wendell Berry, for being my guest today. Well, you're entirely welcome.